Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm talking with Nicole Chung, whose debut memoir, All You Can Ever Know, is out now from Catapult Books. Nicole's essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Times Magazine, GQ, Longreads, Shondaland, BuzzFeed, and Hazlitt, among others. She's the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine and the former managing editor of The Toast. All You Can Ever Know is a deeply thought and felt account of Nicole's life as the Korean-American child of white adoptive parents. As she becomes pregnant with her first child and decides to seek her birth family, Nicole re-examines the life her parents gave her in their tiny white community, the schoolyard racism she suffered, the questions about her identity that continue to nag at her, the alternate reality she might have had with her birth family. She writes with clear-eyed honesty and tenderness about the larger narrative of her life that comes into focus as she deepens these familial connections, and about the four parents, all flawed in their ways, who have impacted her life. All You Can Ever Know is about family narratives and the larger truths that these narratives can often blunt. As I tell Nicole in our conversation, for me, the book was also about longing to be seen for who you fully are, especially by the people closest to you. All You Can Ever Know is out now in the world during a difficult time for Nicole's family. Her adoptive father passed away earlier this year, and her adoptive mother was recently diagnosed with cancer. In this conversation, we talk about working with, and often writing through, grief. We also talk about writing in motherhood, keeping a journal, and finding a community of writers to call your own. I think every family has these certain stories that they tell about their children that they tell about themselves. And um, it's not that these stories aren't true to a point, right? But you come to a place where they're not the whole story or they're not, it's just not a full enough picture. I wanted to ask you to start, you know, I know that um, you had written several essays kind of dealing with your adoption and with kind of your identity as, a, as an adoptee, what mm-hmm. made you decide to spin that into a larger book-length work? That's a good question. So um, initially when I began writing about adoption, I don't think I, I thought I would ever write a book about it, like a whole book. Maybe I just thought a whole book sounded very daunting. <laughs> I don't know. But um, no, I, I think I wanted, I began writing essays initially because uh you know, in the, I guess, mainstream adoption discourse, we don't tend to hear a lot of adoptee perspectives and in particular uh, perspectives from transracial adoptees. And I felt it was worth sharing. Um, of course, not every adoptee can or should like feel like putting themselves out there in that way. But I was several years past my, my search for my birth family. Um, and I'd had a lot of time like to process it and to deal with it and to feel as though writing about it was something I could do and something I wanted to do. Um, I really only published a few pieces initially, and I remember getting a lot of really good questions from people uh, that kind of surprised me. Like, let's just say mostly good questions. There were a few not great questions, of course. Um, But by and large, I think it was something people were curious about and maybe even more curious than I had anticipated. Um, So sometimes I would write a piece like, it was less personal, more just sort of exploring a topic and about adoption. And then I realized people had different questions. And so eventually it struck me that in order to really explore this topic and in particular my search and my reunion and everything that happened, uh, at the same time I was becoming a parent myself to really do all that justice, it might need a longer narrative. 
Um, and what I was looking at was probably a book. So I think it, I just got to the point where telling the story piece by piece, essay by essay, um, wasn't really working uh, as well anymore. I thought it needed like the space for a book. Right. And and even just then from the kind of practical writing as a business side, you know, I, I think, um, you know, you'll often hear like, that's an article, not a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think to kind of have started with the essays and proved the, the interest probably accidentally set you a really good foundation for selling the proposal, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, that said, I think, um, I think being one of the only and one, and one of the few adoption memoirs out there by an adoptee, uh, made it a little bit harder to be really honest with you. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I do feel like very fortunate to have gotten to tell this story and I'm happy with how the book turned out. Um, I'm only a couple months past publication now, but like, I think I can say that with confidence. I'm like happy with the experience so far, um, despite the challenges, but yeah, I think it's also not always easy to convince anyone to let you be like one of the first to do something. Um, so even though I did have several essays under my belt and, you know, a couple of them especially had done extremely well. Um, and I feel as though, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a platform in the toast at the time that I was trying to sell this book. I think it was also a little bit difficult sometimes for people to envision exactly where it fit in a literary landscape where adoptees really aren't well represented. Why do you think they hadn't been well represented? I'm not sure. I I mean, I really couldn't say. I've I've also gotten this question before, and I wish I had a better answer. Part of it is is something I kind of allude to in the book. Perhaps um, I think a lot of people tend to think of adoption with adoptees as the objects um, and as children, and not as full people in their own right who grow up and have their own perspectives on the adoption. You know, we just so often get the story of adoption from the perspective of those who want to adopt or who do adopt. Um, and so I think like, of course, while that's an important, valid perspective, you know, it has been the dominant one, um, in the conversation for a long time. Um, but yeah, as for why, I mean, we have generations of adoptees from other countries, from this country. Um, I, I'm not sure why there are so few of our stories written by us out there, to be honest. It, it's something I've kind of puzzled over often. It's, it's really striking, you know, you saying that reminds me of a reaction I had while reading the book. There's a, at one point you're, I believe, just about to graduate from college and a couple uh, is is asking you about adoption and being adopted because they're considering adoption. And I was so struck by just what a tremendous amount of pressure that is to put on a 21-year-old. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, to that, it, it's interesting too. It was a lot of pressure. I don't know that I felt so much of it from them. I remember all of the like pressure and sort of panic I felt was really internal. I I had put so much pressure on myself to represent like my family and my adoption and adoption generally in this certain light. And I realized like it left me unable to answer like the very basic straightforward question. Like, were there any issues? Like, was it ever hard for you? I don't know why I couldn't just say like, yes, it was, this is what happened. But like, I found myself completely unable to in that moment. And it really kind of shocked me. And that was not their fault. Like that was just something that I, that was the result of me putting so much pressure on myself. And I suppose over the years, maybe a little bit my family or like strangers even putting pressure on me to represent it a certain way. But 
mostly in that moment, I remember just like hearing my own voice in my head, like going through the memories and thinking like, you can't tell them that. <laughs> right. Like, what will they think if you tell them that? Um, so yeah, it was definitely a strange moment. I still, to this day, you know, I get a lot of questions from adoptive parents or hopeful adoptive parents. I would say at most of my events, um, someone has asked me, you know, do you have any advice for people hoping to adopt? And it's funny, like, I understand completely why they're asking. I'm right now, like, a very visible transracial adoptee. Um, at the same time, you know, of course, I did not write this book to be instructive. Um, I, I mean, I wrote it honestly. And I, of course, I hope people take take things from it that are valuable or helpful to them. Um, but I, I do, I, I have, I have things I say when I'm asked that. And at the same time, a little part of me is always thinking like, I am not the person you should be asking. Like I am a parent, but I feel like so many of us like ill-equipped to give great parenting advice, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a question I've gotten over and over. And I think sometimes, sometimes people want to hear if you just do these five things, like say these exact five things, everything will be fine. Um, it's very human, like to want that kind of reassurance. But, uh, yeah, I, I generally try to, um, I try to answer really honestly about, about it. I, I cite my own experience, which is only my experience. You know, of course it's not representative of all adoptees, not everybody who's adopted would agree with me. Um, but also like just noting, like, I, I don't feel super well equipped to, um, to necessarily answer those huge questions. Like, what should we do? Should we adopt, you know, for other people? It's no longer a position I feel like I can be in personally. Right. Right. And I think what you're, what you're describing there, that feeling, that kind of inner sensor, like that internal sensor that you're describing, um, it really underscores for me this feeling I had when I finished the book. And, and I don't mean this in a reductive way at all, because it is obviously a very nuanced and very complicated story. But I was really struck by how, by kind of my way into it, you know, not having this life experience was a lot of this overarching idea of just like showing yourself to your family in a way that they haven't seen you or, or feeling like that Yes. That your story isn't quite being uh, given given light, you know, and and for a different, you know, obviously your birth parents that means one thing, your adopted parents that means a different thing, but there is always this pervasive sense of just like I just want you to see me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely um, something I was thinking about a lot while I was writing, and something that other people, I think, adopted and non adopted, have told me since reading the book is that. I think every family has these certain stories that they tell about their children, that they tell about themselves. And um, it's not that these stories aren't true to a point, right? But you come to a place where they're not the whole story or they're not, it's just not a full enough picture. Um, I'm really interested in that moment, that turn in other people's lives too, when like they're no longer content with how they've always been seen in their family or like what their story's always been, um, how it's been told to them. I'm always interested in that moment when like your perception changes, like your perception of yourself and you have to find out more, um, and stand up and say, no, this is actually who I am. You know, I think that's a very powerful, very relatable, um, pretty universal moment in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And I think especially for, I mean, I'm sure, you know, artists of all stripes, but it being a writing show, I mean, I think, you mm -hmm. know, so many writers talk about that feeling of otherness and, and, you know, obviously you were seeing that 
in a really extreme way, kind of in the schoolyard as a kid in this language that, you know, with, without having quite the language to, to describe yet what you were experiencing. But, but that feeling of just like, I, I really, I really resonated or really connected to that idea of like the writing as refuge and as escape that you talk about. Thank you so much. I'm glad, I'm glad it, it meant something to you. I mean, I think that, I think a lot of writers would, would agree with that. And I don't know. It, and it's so fascinating to me, that idea of like your imagination kind of being this conversation with yourself. And like, as a kid, there is equipment that you don't have and there's vocabulary that you don't have, but you are making really sophisticated use of the tools that you do have, you know? Yeah. I think the biggest thing writing gave to me as a kid was just the ability to imagine um, different lives, which I realize can sound kind of trite. Like, of course, that's what writing stories and reading stories can give to a kid, especially like a lonely kid. But I also think like, it was a really radical, um, empowering act in a way that I didn't even recognize fully at the time. Um, Because it would have been easy, I guess, to just feel dejected or to just feel kind of hopeless. And, And honestly, sometimes I did. But I was still like, you know, there, there's more out there. I don't know what. I just know there's more out there. I'm going to try to imagine it and I'll get it down on paper. And then like a little piece of it will be real for me. Um, I think that's a huge part of like what got me through my childhood in this like small white town, you know? Um, I I don't know. I think it's still, of course, like it's not the only reason to write and it, it wouldn't necessarily in and of itself have kept me writing once I moved like beyond my town, uh, into the wider circles. But I, I don't know, like it was why I initially started and it made a huge difference to me growing up. You, um, mentioned in, I can't remember which interview with you that I, Hmm. that I read that you say this, but, um, the idea of, of some of this writing for all you can ever know being, being very therapeutic, uh, which totally makes sense. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about kind of the kind of transition between that initial stage of catharsis and then like having to evaluate it in a more detached way, like as a writer, as an editor, as just sort of like narrative and text that you're dealing with. Sure. I think it was therapeutic, less in the sense of catharsis for me, um, and more because, um, you know, I'm 10 years now past, like, searching for my birth family. And I actually think in some ways it was hard to write about it from this distance, and in other ways it was extremely helpful because I had already... I'd had the initial catharsis in like writing about it at the time and not publishing that just mm-hmm. like, just like having those records. Um, I've mentioned this elsewhere too, but like I had, I've been like a daily journaler like all my life. And so especially during my search um, and while I was pregnant with my first child, because those two things were simultaneous, um, I was journaling like pretty much every day. And like every time I had a call with like my intermediary or somebody in my birth family, you know, I, I would write down like our conversations that same day. And I have these almost verbatim records from that time because of my journals and because of our, our email correspondence and stuff. Um, it was just enormously helpful. Like, I don't think I could have written the book without those sources, but also I think that initial writing, um, was really the catharsis part. Um, but it was really therapeutic to kind of revisit it, to talk about it with everybody in my family, because um, while we had, of course, like talked about it at the time and after, it's been a number of years probably since we really got back into it and and talked a lot about how things have changed. Like my 
my relationships with people and my family are just different than they were um, at the time I was searching, you know, and some, some ways are very obvious. Um, like my father passed away earlier this year, my adoptive father, and it is, it's sad, obviously. And it's also kind of changed my relationship with my mom just because it's just the two of us now it's, it's different. And, um, also I've started to see my two families begin to merge a little bit. Um, my sister, Cindy, uh, who, you know, is obviously a major, a major character in the book and we're very close. Like she's my biological sister, but she has met and she's getting to know my adoptive mother now. Um, and it's just been really interesting to see like how that has changed, um, like our relationships, I guess, and how it's changed, how I understand this family. Um, so just getting to talk about, you know, I got to talk about the book with my mother, my adoptive mom and my sister, like at the same time. And that was kind of extraordinary. Um, yeah. So in that sense, I think that writing the book and talking about it with my family, it has, it's just prompted all of these new conversations and they've been for the most part, really good conversations. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think that's the main sense in which it's therapeutic. Also just in the sense that writing always is like you're writing about events and you're trying to figure out what the story is. And in figuring it out, you come to see very clearly, like you see it from all different angles. You see its place in your life, what it really means to you, how it changed you, how it changed people you care about. Um, it's again, like just one of the most human things to want to take events and figure out like, what's the story? What's the narrative? What does it mean? Um, and so doing all of that, while I had done some of it before, um, doing all of that in a, I guess, in a lengthier, more cohesive project um, was was definitely helpful in figuring out just how I, how I think about all of these events and how I think about my family now. Right, right. So were you thinking from the beginning that you wanted to um, have them be really active? Because I mean, they are very active characters in the book in the sense that also they get a lot of, um, you know, interiority and and you're you're really kind of diving into their perspectives. Is that was that was that with you from the beginning? I don't know from the very beginning, you know, the first chapter to emerge that way was, um, the chapter about my adoptive parents early in the book. And I I knew I wanted to write about how they came to adopt me. And that was always going to be more focused on their life than mine because I was a baby and like not yet in their lives. Uh, I wanted to uh, sort of trace this like winding path that they ended up taking to adoption and to adopting me specifically. Um, I, and then like the whole chapter emerged and it was really from the varying perspectives, but primarily my parents. And it was, it was good. I felt, um, it felt big and open. It felt like I was really telling their story. Um, it felt like I was honoring it in a way, which I I did want to do. I wanted to be honest, but I also wanted, um, I don't know. I wanted to honor it and what a like loving and compelling story it was. And I think too, it, you needed it for the rest of the story. Like if you didn't understand them and how badly they wanted to be parents, it's much harder to understand like why, um, why it was so hard for me initially and for years really to think about looking beyond them to look for like my birth family. You know, there was always this powerful sense within our family of like, this is enough. Like we are enough. This is your real family. Um, this is all we ever wanted, you know, and it's, it is such a powerful narrative and it came from a place of love and it took a long time to be not question that 
because I don't, I don't question their love for me, but like to begin to question what else is out there? Do I need more than this? You know, maybe my parents don't, but like, do I, do I need more than this? Um, and I think you have to understand too, their love and their motivations to get like, you know, why they were so insistent on a closed adoption and why when the opportunity came to maybe open my adoption when I was a child, like they were not willing. Um, it's not enough to just say like they weren't willing and they closed that door. I think you need to see like, again, like what my adoption really meant to them, like how they viewed it within the story of our family. Um, so that was really important. And then with my sister, Cindy's perspective, which is also in the book and sort of threaded throughout, um, she has several chapters that are from her perspective. Um, that was a little bit of a surprise to me too. Again, I knew, I always knew I was going to write about my sister. Um, eventually I was really interested in this idea of like, you know, I think it's very relatable. All of us, whether we're adopted or not, like maybe at times have felt like out of place in our families or just wondered like, you know, how did I get here? Why is this my family? I don't even mean that in like an angry, bitter way. Mm -hmm. Just like, I think it's natural to wonder like, what would I be like if I had different parents? For sure. You obviously wonder this in a very different way if you're an adoptee, because like there's this sense of randomness to it. Like you could have been adopted by anybody or your birth parents could have kept you. Like it's very possible that you could have had different parents. Whereas for most people, it is not possible. If you had different parents, you wouldn't be you. Um, So I thought about that a lot. And I know my sister, like from talking with her, she often felt like within, within her family and they were her biological family, kind of just feeling like she didn't quite fit. And, um, when we, when we finally did meet, it was wonderful for so many reasons, but it was also just fascinating to see like, and to understand and to talk about, you know, she now kind of has an answer to what it could be like to like be herself, but not within her family. I'm kind of like an alternate history for her, just as she's kind of an alternate history for me. Like I, through her life and through exploring it and through thinking about her experiences, I have some idea of what it could have been like growing up in my birth family. Um, of course, neither of us can ever know exactly because life didn't work out that way. And if it weren't for my adoption, things would have been like very different, right? Within my birth family. But Um, yeah, I, I wanted to show those two, like the two of us growing up in parallel, not knowing about each other. And then I realized a lot of the tension in the story initially could come from the fact that, you know, eventually our paths will cross. Like, you know, you just have a sense, at least I think it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but you still don't know how or when or why, like that's the mystery. I wanted to set up that idea, that question, like, will we meet when and how, and what will it be like for us? Um, and have those questions drive some of the tension in the story and some of the tension behind the search. Um, so in the end, like it felt really important to give her not just space in the book, but like perspective. So you understand her life because to some degree it's the life I could have had. And she is the sister I could have grown up with. Um, I think it was just, it was just really important to, to have her perspective there and to try and, and honor her story. Right. And and I think that your your relationship with Cindy also serves this very interesting function. There's a sense in which there's like the biological family component, but also a chosen family component. Right. Definitely. Um, for sure. I think 
I don't know. I also think that this idea of chosen family is, is very, very common, especially these days. And, um, you know, in this case, it was very much not like me saying, you know, my existing family is less important sure. or whatever. But yeah, there, I think there is a really powerful element to, um, of choice in my relationship with Cindy and hers with me, because it, it would have been very easy for either of us to say, it's nice to know about you, but like, I don't feel a strong connection or, you know, thank you very much. But I don't know, like, this has been fun. Yes. <laughs> and that, it could have been that I think initially, that's what I was imagining was like, Oh, it'd be cool to ask some questions. And like, maybe we'd exchange holiday cards, but and emails, but I didn't, I certainly didn't imagine anything like the relationship that has developed and just how, um, incredibly like important it has been and how my sister is, you know, my first call in a crisis. And I like to think I'm one of hers, you know, we've really been able to be real sisters and be there for each other in ways like I couldn't have imagined, you know, when I was deciding to search, um, it was a very unexpected gift. Um, and yeah, it was entirely our choice. You know, it wasn't really anybody pushing us. It was just like, this is something we both really wanted. Um, and it, it just means everything to me that she not just made space in my life or like want in her life for me or like wanted to talk with me a little bit, but that she really um, wanted us to have that kind of relationship. Right, right. Uh, I don't know if now, I guess this is a complicated thing to say, but I don't know now if you would consider yourself an only child, but as a, as another only child, certainly growing up an only child. Um, I'm curious if you like wanted siblings. Like I, I was very obsessed with siblings and I'm still very yeah. fascinated by sibling relationships because it's something that I just like have never experienced. And so like that, that, that connection is like super fascinating to me. I just wondered if like you brought that to it too. Totally. I was absolutely obsessed with like siblings. Um, growing up, I really, really wanted a sister, a brother, like I would say, especially a sister, but yeah you know, I would have happily accepted a brother too. I remember sometimes my parents would talk about adopting another child actually, but they never did. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I mean, I was very used to being the only child I was accustomed to like, I was very independent. I was comfortable with adults, a little bit bossy, all of the like only child stereotypes (laughs) definitely had those, but I, I always really liked the idea of having a sibling. Um, and like, as I wrote about in the book, there was this Asian girl who went to my school for like about five minutes yeah. <laughs> and I asked her to be my little sister. Like if she just wanted to pretend or something at school, like I was just, I don't know. I, I always really, I always really wanted that kind of a connection. Um, so, and I do uh, for the record, I guess I consider myself an only child, like with an asterisk, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because you know, not to discount my sister at all and the relationship we have, but like, this year, especially like with my father passing and my mother getting sick, I've realized, I mean, I felt like more, honestly, more alone than ever in terms of being their only child Mm -hmm. and having the guilt and the responsibility and the worry, just like the fear, um, all of that. There's nobody else in the world who's going to feel that with me, um, to this degree. Of course, like my husband and my sister love me and care about me a lot and would do whatever they could to help. But in the end, like that's my this is my, these are my parents. I'm their only child. This is my responsibility. So yeah, I do. I do consider myself an only child in that sense. I'm my parents' only child. Um, and I was raised an only child. So I have a lot of the, (laughs) the only child characteristics, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I mean, all that to say, I am extremely grateful to have Cindy in my life and I I've turned to her like so much for support. Um, 
it's just been, you know, it's been really wonderful to feel in that sense, like less alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I, I want to talk about, um, you know, kind of jumping from the decision to, to incorporate these people's voices into the book. Um, talk about the structure of the book because I, I, I imagine, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's like any process where like you embark on a long project and maybe aren't quite cognizant of how big it is. Cause if, if you were, maybe you wouldn't start it, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. but I don't know, like I can also imagine this feeling of just like, where do I even begin with this? So how did you decide to, to where, how, talk (laughs) about the birth of the structure of this book, I guess. Oh my gosh. So originally the structure was more chronological. I wouldn't say it was entirely chronological. You know, there were, there was some moving about in time, but not nearly as much as there is in the final draft that was published. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So originally I had pictured the book in these, in three parts. Um, the first part more focused on growing up adopted. Um, and the second, uh, like, leading up to, and some of like, like the decision to search, like how and when and why that all happened. Um, which for me again was related to becoming a parent, um, realizing, you know, I'm about to have a child. Like, uh, I, I don't have like a history. I don't have medical information. I don't have like a heritage to share with her. You know, all this is missing. I want to find something more that I can provide to her. And then the third part was really about, um, like after the search, like what happens then? Because the very, very few adoption reunion stories that are kind of out there in pop culture, a lot of them end like with the reunion, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's happy, it usually is, or whether it's complicated. And, but when I say it usually is, I mean like on TV Mm -hmm. (laughs) or books, I don't mean like in real life. I think there's a wide range obviously of of real lived experiences, but, um, in pop culture, like you, you see the happy reunion and that's kind of it. Like I wanted to really show the aftermath and how complicated it is and like how you're incorporating this new knowledge and these new relationships into your identity. Um, and what's at stake, which again, for me was impacted by the fact that I was a mother, like a new parent. Um, so although the book is not really a parenting memoir at all, like it was relevant to my search. Uh, so I had, I had pictured the book in these three pieces and, um, it helped me get the first draft down. And then by the time it was down, I could see places where I wouldn't say I felt like it was really lagging, but like, to me, again, like the tension, I wanted the search to be introduced sooner than it was. And in that draft, I didn't get to it really till part two. Right. It's like a third of the way through the book. It felt too late to me. It felt like that's the main question you have, um, from the very beginning of the book, it, it, like the, that's the reason you pick it up, right? It's like, is she going to search? What's she going to find? Um, so I wanted to introduce that, not just the idea of the search, but the reality of it, like um, the process, the questions, like how much money I had to pay the intermediary and like how she proceeded and what I wrote to my birth parents. You know, I wanted, I realized all that had to happen earlier in the book um, because it was, it was really like, it's just where a lot of the um, momentum and the suspense comes from, right? So I had this like dream where I was telling my editor um, Julie Button, who's amazing. I read this inter- I loved. I loved. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I have told this story before, no, but like, definitely tell it again. It's so good. Okay. So in my dream, I was telling Julie, "Oh man, like you're gonna hate me because I know you're currently editing my full draft, but like I, I." 
I actually think we need to entirely restructure like the first half of the book at least. So, and like, then I proceeded to explain it to like dream Julie, like in great detail. And I don't usually have writing dreams, thank God. And I don't usually remember them. Um, but I woke up and I remembered every word I'd said to her and I remembered exactly how I had told her I was going to change the book. And I just remember sitting there like, crap, like now I actually have to do this and it's going to be so much work. And like, what if it doesn't work? Um, and also I have to tell real Julie about it now. So, uh, I did, I, I, I got through to her. I think Julie was on her own book tour at the time. Like poor thing. What a champion. I know. I know. So, um, she was really supportive, of course. Julie has been, there's never been a moment in any of this where Julie was not 100% there yeah. for me. But uh, she basically said, okay, save your first draft. <laughs> Don't delete it. Um, but go ahead and make those changes and, you know, let me know what you think. And it took a while, like a, at least a few weeks, but it was clear as soon as I started um, slicing, dicing, deleting, and adding, I probably cut 10,000 words and added 5,000 more. Like it was pretty clear that the new structure was going to work a lot better and that it would be, I really hoped it wouldn't be confusing for the reader to hop around so much in time and to hop around between me, my upbringing and like my birth family and my sister. But, um, it just, it moved like at such a clip at that point. Mm -hmm. And we did get to the search much earlier. Um, and the search, like the big moments in the search would happen in between these key moments from like childhood and adolescence when I was asking certain questions about my adoption or my birth family or um, like my birth family at one point tried to reach out to me and I didn't know about it till I was much older. You know, so you get those moments, those key moments alongside like uh, moments further in the future when I'm actually when I'm actually deciding to search. Um, and I think, I think that part works really well. Um, but yeah, it was daunting. And then by the time I was done with all of that rearranging and rewriting, um, it was a four part book. Right. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, a structure is so interesting. I love talking about it. It's the hardest thing. Yes. Um, you know, I also sometimes teach and it is like the number one concern of like, basically every student I've ever had trying to write memoirs is nailing the structure. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's interesting. It, it ended up, the book did end up looking differently than I thought, but, um, but yeah, in the end I was pretty happy with the structure. Yeah. I, I love, I love that anecdote. And I think it's so important to like, I think so much of the work is hearing that voice. That's like, crap, this is going to be a lot of work, but I have to do it. And like, just actually respecting it and instead of just being like, maybe I can get away with not doing it when like I you just know deep that. down that's not going to work. I know. I sat on it for a couple of days before I told Julie because I was like, what if I don't have to, what if I can like, you know, make it work without doing this? <laughs> um, because it did, it sounded really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but I was, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad I did. I think the book is so much better for it. Um, and it's so weird too, because like, again, I don't dream about writing. Um, I don't dream about my book. Like I don't, it's just not something, uh, it's not something I've ever really like had dreams about. Uh, and it was, it was nice. I guess the one time my subconscious like sent me a clear writing message, right. um, <laughs> you know, it happened to be a good one. <laughs> Um, I I don't know, but yeah, I, I, and so it's funny, like when I was telling people, yeah, I rewrote the first half of my book based on a dream. It made me feel like a big cliche, (laughs) Um, but it, it ended up working out, I think. So.
Hey, it's Courtney. If you get as much out of listening to WMFA as I do out of producing it, and I hope that you do, then I have a favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? Think of this like those fundraising drives they do on NPR, only with less Ira Glass. Okay, with no Ira Glass. Patreon is a digital platform that allows listeners to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount, and in return, I give you thank you gifts like shoutouts, transcripts, and bonus segments. Choose from my pledge tiers or donate a custom amount that works for you. All of you who do the freelance hustle will hear me when I say that literally every dollar counts. Platforms like Patreon are so important for independent creatives like me and for growing shows like WMFA. By helping me continue to make WMFA, you're not only supporting a passion project, you're also supporting a mini economy of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. Your money goes directly to the people behind the show. It's kind of like shopping at the farmer's market for your ears. To pledge, visit www.patreon.com backslash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash WMFA podcast. And thanks so much. I truly appreciate it. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about kind of your writing life more generally. I mean, as you said, yeah. you've been you've been journaling daily, which I also find super interesting because like I I I am not a big I've never been able to get into the kind of diary keeping or journal keeping. I've I've in the past couple of years developed a morning pages practice that I do like a little bit sporadically, but okay. but I'm always really interested when writers like do have a, a steady daily journaling habit. I would say it's less, it's not always daily now. Um, it definitely was like daily or almost daily, probably through most of my childhood, definitely through college and after. Um, and while I was searching for my birth family again, because I knew I'd want a record. Like yeah. I imagined, I wasn't thinking I'd write a book, but I was thinking I could share this with my kids someday. Mm-hmm. And she would know like what I was doing while I was pregnant with her. You know, I was going to childbirth class. I was registering for baby items and I was looking for my birth family. Like this is what happened. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I guess I want, I felt I've particularly journaled during periods of my life where I felt like I will want a record of this someday, even if it's just for me, um, or for my family. So, um, I would say now, like, it's much harder for me to, to have like a a devoted daily journal practice, but I do it still fairly often. Um, and I've started to like do some bullet journaling even, uh, like on on tour. Cause I knew there were things I'd want to remember tours a blur. It goes so fast. Um, and I just knew there were things uh, that were wonderful that I would want to to keep in my memory that I was going to forget eventually if I didn't make a note. So I've been bullet journaling. During what is it? What then. appeals to you about bullet journaling? I'm, I, I, I don't know much about it. <laughs> oh, I don't think I'm necessarily doing it right. Like, I don't know if there's a, a, a process for other people. Okay. I carry a notebook around. I have favorite pens. And like at the end of each day or something, uh, I would write like a list of every like noteworthy thing, I guess, that I wanted to be sure to remember. Sometimes if I was afraid I'd forget, I'd like whip it out and write it right after it happened. Um, so yeah, and it, really it's what it sounds like. Like I make a little bullet in Got the it. journal and then like write it down separated by date. Um, it's not very sophisticated and it's not as thorough as the journals that I was able to turn to when I was writing this book because those were like, I mean, those are like full paragraphs, pages and pages of sure. actual writing. But the goal of the the bullet journal for tour is just to help me remember tour. It's not like I think I'll write a book about tour. Um, so yeah, it's 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 uh, something I do less of now, but I still try to maintain 
But yeah, I, I, I often feel bad I don't have more of like a writing process or a writing routine. Um, I can definitely sit down and like make myself write pretty much on cue, which I think is just a function of having a full-time job and children sure. and trying to write on top of it. Like I, I'm sometimes asked like, is there like a favorite time of day you like to write? Do you have like literally whenever I can? Yeah. Do you have a playlist? I was like, I probably wrote a lot of this book with some Disney movie on in the background. Uh, So I wish though I had more of a routine and I think I would find it. um, I think I'd find it reassuring. I love routines. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm not in a season in my life where a writing routine is super possible. It's like a miracle. I write it all. <laughs> so, um, I pretty much just seize the time when I can. And a lot of this book was evenings and weekends and, you know, lunch breaks, things like that. But this is exactly what I like, what I love about like doing the show and talking to other writers is cause like you, I think it's very easy to like be at your desk by yourself and think that everybody else just has like a much better setup, even if it's not ideal, just like I don't know, stuff that seems so impossible to you when you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to really write a good novel in an hour every day before I go to work. But then, like, you talk to people who have done exactly that, and you're like, oh. Yeah. I guess I will. (laughs) No, I truly believe everybody is just kind of muddling through and doing the best they can. Yeah. I mean, which is not to knock anybody's routine or favorite time of day or playlist, like, whatever you need. But, you know, even that is you doing, like, what you can with the time that you have. so I don't know. I think, uh, and it's funny too, because I've done almost all of my writing and publishing, like with children, I didn't really start writing and publishing essays. Um, until when did I start? I went back to grad school part-time when my daughter, my youngest was like seven or eight months. And, um, that's about when I started pitching and publishing. And so I've never done this without two children, um, around. So, you know, it's possible for various reasons, I guess. Like one is just, I've figured out how to put my head down and do it. <laughs> but the the other is that like, I, you know, I have to really, um, use my writing time. I can't say like, I'm not feeling it today. Like if I have an hour today, I have to use it. Um, and I also, to be honest, have a partner, I have a husband who's extremely, you know, we're, we are true co-parents. And so it doesn't like, it's not like I have to do all the household chores are all of the emotional labor, you know, that is by and large something we share fairly equally. If anything, he actually, he probably does more than I do. So, um, it's allowed me to find the time to write while working full time and parenting. Um, definitely couldn't do it with children without like, a a partner who gets that. Right. Right. Do you think that any of it too comes from you obviously were an editor at the toast and, um, now you, you edit, uh, at catapult. Um, do you think like the kind of internet pace has affected you as well? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I've never gotten that before. Let me think about it. Um, okay. I am used to working all the time. (laughs) So at the toast, I did work all the time. Uh, by the end there, I was, I mean, I was working a lot. Like I'd start at like eight or nine and I would go till the same time that evening or later, um, like taking breaks from meals usually, but it was a lot of hours and catapult. Uh, well, it's also a place where you can end up working like a lot. Um, I also, I like to work. I find it good and comforting. It's part of my routine. I feel good at work. Um, I enjoy doing it. So like probably there are times when I could step away earlier, but don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, maybe the internet pace and just the fact of like setting 
setting daily, weekly deadlines. I'm very used to those short deadlines. I don't think I've ever missed a deadline in my life. Like my, like my, the first round, um, my, my final draft of this book was due like right after I found out my father died. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm sure they would have given me an extension, like as much time as I needed. But I remember just feeling like, I don't want this hanging over me. Like it's, it's just going to get worse from here. Like my grief, it's just going to get harder because right now I'm like kind of in shock. And as soon as it hits me, like, I don't know if I'll be able to function. So the thought of like going to my father's funeral and then coming home to have a book deadline hanging over me right. was like unbearable. So I pushed really hard and I, I remember finishing that first draft like um, the day before we left for his funeral just because I did not want it there when I got back. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not saying this to like to pat myself on the back. I don't even know if that's good or healthy, <laughs> but uh, it was what I did because it felt like I have time now. I don't know if I'll be in any shape to do it later. So I had better do it now. Yeah. I, I really, I really loved the essay that you wrote about that, that I'll link to in the show notes on long reads. And, um, and that, that did resonate with me. I mean, in um, different sort of events like that, that have happened in my life feeling like, okay, just get to work and, and do what you can while you can. Yeah. I remember thinking that you have two choices here. You could push back all your deadlines and probably publish the book like in 2019 instead, you know, which I guess would be, it's not like it wouldn't have been okay. Like it would have been okay, but I don't know. It felt like if I was going to proceed with the, with the pub date that we had selected, like I just needed to do it. Um, so I don't know, maybe too, it was good part of me might have wanted something else to focus on, Mm -hmm. like to spend a certain number of hours per day doing what I had to do and, um, and not not thinking about, you know, grief. It was just, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I remember thinking too, like dad wouldn't have wanted me to like push the book back or, you know, I don't know. It was just, I just felt like I needed also to have control over something right. in my life. And that seemed like a thing I could still maybe have some control over. For sure. um, I don't know. To be honest, I don't remember those months super clearly. Um, <laughs> like it's definitely one thing grief does is like blur your experiences and your memory a little bit. Like there are parts of this year I can't remember very well. I was just talking to my agent and, you know, telling her like, I just, there are parts of like, especially January, February, March that are so hazy to me. And then even there are parts of tour where the grief has been a lot. And I've just like, I don't remember it super clearly. And it's just, it's just like a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we just found out my mom was sick, um, while I was on the road a couple weeks ago. And, uh, I went immediately to a panel and don't remember what I said on it, Right, right. (laughs) but yeah, it's a strange, and it's definitely just been strange having all of this happen in the worst year my family's ever experienced. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, but it's been, it's been strange and not how I pictured any of this happening (laughs) for sure, which is not to say like, which is not to say like my book is the most important thing and everything else should have waited. That's not what I'm saying. Just like, yeah, I mean, there are parts of this that I, I know I won't remember super clearly. And that's another reason I've been trying to, um, journal a little bit about it on the road. Um, I just feel like in the state I'm in right now, like 
I have to preserve these things or I, I won't be able to recall them later or to feel them or to enjoy them. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think what you're describing is certainly something that, that resonates with me of that, like you can put, you can compartmentalize to such a degree and then it's just like, Oh wait, but like it, it's kind of the, the, the keeping things separate kind of makes reality less real. Yeah. Like there's a certain degree. It's funny because I have felt this whole year, like I'm compartmentalizing or scheduling my grief. Mm. There were several months there where I would break down every like Friday evening mm. over my dad because the kids were, we were done with the school week, done with the work week. There were usually no book things to do on Friday night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and my kids were in bed and that was like the only point at which I had any time or space to myself to like grieve. And I finally realized like clockwork, I was like crying about my dad, like every Friday night. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. And then I felt really bad for like scheduling my grief, like what kind of monster, etc., etc. Um, no, but, but I feel like this is actual advice. Like, I mean, as a, <laughs> as a, as a person who suffers from anxiety, this is definitely an advice, a piece of advice with anxiety to like, kind of tell your fear brain, like, okay, in 20 minutes, I'm going to freak out for five minutes and then I'm going to be done. Really? Okay. That's so interesting. Cause I kept thinking, I kept beating myself up over it. Like not only am I a wreck, but like, I'm like compartmentalizing my grief and what kind of monster does that. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, is this even healthy? Like, I, I just feel like I, I also feel like I had just started to deal with all of my grief when the book stuff started picking up right. and I had just started to feel human again. And then it was like interviews in the road. And of course I'm like very grateful for the book coming out and for, you know, any and all attention and for people have been just so supportive and wonderful. Um, the response to the book has been beyond anything I imagined to be really honest with you, but like, it's also just been like the hardest time. Um, and I don't know, like I, I sometimes wonder if like I'm compartmentalizing too much, like if it's all just going to really hit me later at some very inopportune like moments. Um, I guess we'll see, but I mean, it's something that like, I think even under the best of circumstances, there's that disconnect when you're promoting a project because you haven't been thinking about it for so long at that point. It's true. And like, you just reach maximum feelings. Yeah. That's like what I call it. You reach maximum feelings, like let's say by noon every day and everything else just kind of goes in the bank and you have to like deal with it when you deal with it. A friend of mine was saying, you know, she had her debut this year too. And she was saying there was a point at which like, like she'd see the nice tweets or the nice reviews or something like the bookstagrams. And like at a certain point she couldn't really just feel any more of it. So she would like take a screenshot, save it to a folder and like look at it later. Yeah. Um, because she wanted to enjoy it and she wanted to appreciate it all. But you do, you reach a point where like you cannot take anything more into your brain. Um, and I definitely have felt that a lot in part because I am doing this while grieving. Like I, I have, I mean, I, I, t- I did the same thing. I, I take screenshots sometimes and I save, you know, every email that I get and I, I know that they, I will really want to remember this later and, and enjoy like people's kindness and their responses. And at the same time, like, right now going through it, there's just a limit to how much you can take in and process. Can we talk about Twitter for a second? Cause you have, okay. you have a huge, you have a huge Twitter following and it's this is so like this mystifying. whole other component of your writing life. <laughs> wow. I, it's funny. I don't think of Twitter as part of my writing life. Oh, okay. Interesting. No, Even better. I don't want to, well, I don't want to sound naive. Like I know it helps, right? Sure, like sure, a, sure. a platform always helps. I don't take it for granted. I'm extremely thankful for it. And it's been a place where I've 
Twitter is like, obviously it's a dumpster fire a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's been the source of like some of the most stressful things that have happened to me, like pretty bad harassment and other Mm. things. But I mean, all that said, it's also been a place where I have found like, uh, it's kind of an astonishing amount of community really. And Mm -hmm. like friends, like real friends and a lot of people who I consider very good friends in real life, you know, I connected with either on Twitter or through other online communities, whether it's hyphen or the toast or, you know, it's just been, I mean, back in the day, like live journal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many like live journal friends I've met in real life. Some of them on the road for the first time, like on tour, it's been amazing. <laughs> but, um, I am, I'm this person who I think growing up without a community, really like a real community. Um, it's something I always look for now and try to see if I can help build in any way. So it's why, it felt like such a privilege like to edit for the toast, for example, and to, to get to edit and publish for that community specifically. Um, it was, it was a real honor and it, it did so much for me personally. Like I got so much out of it. Um, and it was just such a wonderful like space of the internet. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in just like missing the toast dearly. It's, it's a good, it was a good place. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. So like, trying to like do some of that same work at catapult and also figure out like how, like how this space is different, but still, um, what I try to keep in my focus as an editor has always been on like emerging writers in particular. Um, I love to work with emerging writers. I really like to be someone's first byline. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, of course, like I also enjoy working with like, I guess more established writers, but the reason I wanted to become an editor, you know, was to work with emerging voices. Um, so I'm very grateful to get to do that. And it's just another source of, of community. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. So that's, that is why, that's why I'm on Twitter and kind of why I stay. I also feel like as an editor, as long as I am publishing other writers work, I need to have some platform to share their work. Right. Um, I mean, of course, like catapult will share it from the social channels and the toast would share, would share people's work. But I also, um, like I try to share my writer's work as well. And just, I don't know, it feels like if I'm going to publish people, that's something I should be doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think all the time about deleting Facebook, but I'm probably, I'm probably on Twitter until the mass exodus to where whatever replaces Twitter. not on topic exactly, but I read this uh, in an interview you did with The Cut, and it really spoke to me and I think really speaks to a lot of people. So I would love to just kind of open up this little one-off topic. And it's about kind of writing in the Trump era, basically. Um, and you say that you... Um, you had stopped, you had to stop working on the book for two months after the election. And you, you say, I don't want to be dramatic, but I felt traumatized. And I felt like everybody I knew was traumatized. I would open up the manuscript and think this doesn't matter and then close it. And I feel like everybody feels that way. Good, good. I was glad it wasn't just me. I was sort of worried for a while. Uh, like, is this like, does this mean like I, I lack devotion to this project? I mean, it it didn't, I finished it and I, I'm glad I did and all of that, but there were probably like two months, maybe two and a half months after the election where, um, I just could not focus on it. I just felt devastated. And I was also like, I was reaching out to a lot of people as I'm sure you were too. Like I was, the first thing I did after the election was like, talk to like, I don't know, 20 friends, like, um, just seem like, are you okay? Like, of course you're not okay, but like, is there anything I can do? You know, we still have each other again. I don't mean to sound dramatic, but like, 
it felt very important to check in with people and be there for them and talk with them and just, and also like try to help my kids understand like what the hell just happened. Of course. Uh, it was like a weird time to be a parent. And it also felt like, a, like I had to have these, um, like ongoing and important conversations with my kids. So yeah, I mean, it was very much kind of just about getting through the day, um, for a while. And, that cut interview is funny because uh, <laughs> I joked with a friend. You could tell, like, at what point in the promo lead up, I gave an interview because, like, I just sort of ran out of like fucks to give. And <laughs> I think it was pretty late in the game when I talked to Lily for the cut. <laughs> I think I was probably pretty frank in that interview. It was it was good though. Um, I just, yeah, it was a strange, like, hard time to be writing, and I wasn't really seriously worried about like my feelings or the trauma sure. derailing the book, you know, I knew I would finish it, but there were several months there where it was just really challenging. And it was partly because there were like these real political divisions within my family. So right. I'm writing about my family and about my relationship with my parents and my upbringing. Um, and I'm so much a product of their upbringing, you know, even though, um, despite our differences and now this kind of pretty wide I ideological gulf between us, um, I, it was difficult, like figuring out what to say. I think what probably shook me out of that actually was writing an essay for the nasty women anthology, mm, um, mm -hmm. which was published on long reads. And it was about talking to my parents about Trump, um, and trying to like move the needle, even though I know they're never going to agree with me on certain things, but explaining to them why I felt like as a person of color, as a parent raising children of color, including one who's disabled, like why I really felt this was a moment that demanded their solidarity. Um, and I think writing that essay is, and seeing a little bit of movement on my mother's part was like what got me out of my funk a little bit and allowed me to return to the book. Um, so I don't know. I, I hate to be like, the solution to not being able to write is more writing because that's insufferable. But, <laughs> but in that case, I think it was what shook me out of it. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and it was a weird experience for me in that, like, I think I was kind of, I, w I had been pivoting from, like, what I was working on to what I wanted to be working on, but I wasn't quite, like, making the the leap yet. And, and so yeah. it was actually very clarifying in that sense because yeah. it was, like, this other stuff, like, I can see how much it doesn't matter. But then that still would, like, be these days of, like, you know – how am I, how am I showing up to this? I'm working on a novel, you know, where you're yes, just like, okay, sure. Um, and I, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I just finished reading this really great biography of Virginia Woolf and she writes about it during the second world war feeling just like, what the hell am I doing? Like fascism yeah. is taking over the world and I'm not, and I just write things. Um, yeah. and so I, I just, I just want to, I just like to talk to writers about that and, and think about like, because I don't think your work has to be political to be political, but, you know, just sort of like right. to see how we're engaging with all of that right now. For sure. Like almost all of my writing, I wouldn't say it's all like about race, but like it's relevant to my story, right. race and heritage and culture. It's always going to be, these are always going to be themes I talk about and, and how to navigate them within like these close personal, like family relationships, um, particularly when there's disagreement. So it's funny, like some, a lot of people have said to me, like the book feels very timely yeah. because. And it's funny because, of course, like I didn't think about it that way necessarily um, when I pitched it or as I began it. Um, but I think one thing that I write about a lot in the book that I've written about over the course of my career and that we're all thinking and talking about right now are just kind of the limits of, of empathy 
and good intentions, mm-hmm. like how far they can take you and all the space that's left, you know? Yes. Um, Even like that really, what felt to me so dated, that concept of like race blindness, that like your yeah. parents, like experts told them that's how you should be. But like, it seems that seems so tone deaf now to us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that said, I still hear it like with surprising frequency mm. from a lot of people who, you know, perhaps should know better. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, certainly at the time my parents were adopting me, it was very much the prevailing message of like the day and particularly within, I guess, transracial adoption, like circles that they were, um, accessing, you know, talking with professionals. That was really what was recommended to them. Um, so I think they found that surprising too. Right. Right. What are you working on now? Oh gosh, the dreaded question. <laughs> uh, I have just started writing uh, like an overview for an essay. It's either an essay collection or like a memoir, but a little more loosely structured, I guess, than um, than all you can ever know. Which which was like a very. It felt like a, it was always clear to me from the beginning that was a continuous like story with mm-hmm. a clear like story arc. I never thought of it as essays at all. This mm-hmm. I could actually see going either way. Um, and then I'm also working on like a novel, but I'm not very far into it. And I'm at the point where I I don't really talk much yeah, about it. Yeah, of course. But yeah, it's about, um, it's not about adoption. There is like one adopted character in the book, um, but it's, it's, it is about a multiracial family and it, it starts following uh, actually two teenagers mm-hmm. and then like follows them for the next 10 years, like into young adulthood. Um, but I think I'm still a ways from like figuring out what exactly it is. It's just been kind of fun to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Well, you can come back and talk about that when you're, <laughs> when yeah. it's out. that'd be fun. <laughs> Um, I just want to wrap up with a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, it changes so much. I feel like it can change year to year and moment to moment. Um, And it's a little bit different for me this year because um, it's hard to feel truly satisfied with anything when you're grieving um, and really anxious. And I have been even before my mom got sick, had been very anxious for her, obviously with her, like losing my dad this year. Um, and it's affected, I don't know. It's not even that I don't think about creative satisfaction. I do, but I, I guess I've moved the goalposts a bit. Um, right now I I'm happy if, you know, I'm happy to be editing and publishing good work. I love like working with great writers to help them tell the stories that mean the most to them. Um, I get something from editing that I don't get from from just writing my own work. Um, I find it like immensely satisfying. It's not like I like it better. It's just different. Um, it's, it's why I still edit. So, I mean, I, I really do. I think editing will always be part of my creative satisfaction in some way. Um, and then I also just really have found like the sense of a community and like a writing community this year has been very important. And again, I don't know, if it seemed even more so because of the year I've had in particular. Um, But I've just been so grateful for the opportunity to like meet with, talk with, connect with a lot of other writers, Um, especially I think that a lot of writers of color have just really been um, there for me this year and there for my book in ways that I like couldn't have imagined. So um, I don't know. I think just being part of that, a community of writers has been, it's still fairly new to me in some ways. Um, and I'm really enjoying that 
And then feeling like I'm writing good work when I have the time, feeling like I'm writing things that perhaps matter to other people. Um, the, I wrote a couple pieces this year that were more about like grief, I guess, which is not something I'd ever written about before. Um, and it, I don't know, it was, it was like strangely satisfying, I guess it was hard to do, but, um, I feel good when I'm trying new things, whether it's, you know, taking an assignment or an interview that kind of scares me (laughs) or, um, or writing about a new topic that I'm not sure I can really do. Um, yeah, I mean, I find all of that satisfying as well, as long as I'm sort of pushing myself to try new things, even if I'm not always feeling like it's a hundred percent successful. Um, I, I do, I find that really rewarding. And like you said, we're all just muddling through. So Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know. But the sense to which we can all like be there for one another and support one another through like a really like terrible time in a lot of ways. Um, you know, this is it's just something I think about a lot. Um and maybe that's even like more important sometimes than the work is like how we show up for one another. Right. Um, yeah, but I've been thinking about that a lot this year too. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio. And the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.